Every year when I'm planning for a Good Friday service, I'm not sure if we're supposed to already be looking ahead, winking towards Easter Sunday morning because we live on the other side of history and we get to stand in that moment already with the hope that's swelling within us. This morning, in my Instagram feed, a post by Bob Goff, darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost, but heaven started counting to three. So we sit in this weird place, a really weird place, commemorating the day that Jesus died, and yet we all call it good. Can you feel the conflict? Systematic theologian Hans Borsma says that the devil himself is conflicted about this day. That the devil himself would want to be celebrating the suffering anguish of the Messiah, and yet all the while knowing that it is this that changes everything. Daryl Johnson says that when death stung Jesus Christ, death stung itself to death. In the same way, I think Satan hates our suffering and yet loves it. To see the children of God struggle, mourn, weep, and yet all the while knowing that God himself has proven already that he can redeem even death itself. And that this too will bring about our righteousness. That's really what we commemorate and what we do when we come on Good Friday, isn't it? I always feel like I can't do this message justice, and I'm right. I feel like you can't sing with enough voice, and we're right. What do you do to reflect a sacrifice that profound that takes even the sting of death away? I started Holy Week on Monday attending a funeral of a good friend whose whose son who had died at 27 years old. And by all of our measurements, that's well before anybody is supposed to pass. And he was a young, strong man. He had played NCAA Division I basketball. He was incredible, strong. And in one week, his health unraveled. And he passed. And I attended that service... And his three older brothers came up to speak. And yes, in tears and sadness, they reflect on the loss of their brother. I didn't even know how they had the voice. I've told my children numerous times, don't even ask me to preach at your wedding. I will be a snot-blowing, bubbly mess, crying away. And then here I see these brothers standing, talking about their faith and the the goodness of, of faith and what we have in this moment. And then the mom and dad came up and gave the message at their own son's funeral. But there was something in the message that the pastor talked about that allowed him to be able to do that. He had said previously on November 20, last year, 2017, he had written himself a note. The note said this, when great pains come into your life, it's good to have a few things settled with God ahead of time. 
He acknowledged that their pain was like nothing he had ever felt. The sadness was so real. But that what he had settled long before the day when his own son had passed is that God is at work for our eternal good even in that. And then we finished a funeral service with hands raised singing, you are so good, you are so good to me. There is no school of thought, no philosopher's wisdom, no religion of the world that can stand and stare into death and proclaim hope like what we get to have. This is why Good Friday is good. Because we get to know there are certain things that have already been settled. And that which has been settled defines you. And so we change our approach to fear and anxiety, about worry and concern about the future and about now all things. Because we are people who the definitive mark of history has told us it's settled, it's done. He said it himself, it is finished. And yes, we still live in the in-between and I know that we worry And it doesn't always feel like things are settled, and we don't always feel like things are resolved. I went looking up 100 passages in Scripture on worry and anxiety and the promises that are ours. Maybe you have a sadness. Maybe you are worried. Maybe you have recently experienced loss. Maybe you know this pain. Maybe you have insecurities or secrets nobody else knows. Maybe you have sin that keeps clawing at your heels and you just can't run fast enough to get away from it in your life. Here's some of the promises of the one who has settled all things, all accounts. Fear not, for I am with you, and be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Settled. Do not be anxious about anything. Settled. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Settled. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Settled. Be courageous and strong. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Settled. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Settled. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Settled. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Settled. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Settled. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Settled. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Settled. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Settled. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Settled. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. 
settled. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Settled. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Settled. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Settled. The Lord is my light and my salvation, so whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I ever be afraid? Settled. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Settled. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Settled. I have given you an authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you in the end. Settled. Fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name and you are mine. Settled. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Settled. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Settled. 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 Settled, 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 settled. That's only the first hundred. Settled, done, it is finished. And this is where we get to live and where we get to say. And notice all of those promises don't rest upon what you have to perform and what you have to do. And yet this is always what we turn back to in our weakness, isn't it? It's what we struggle with as God's people over and over again. I want to read a passage for you from Jeremiah already in the Old Testament here. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. Don't follow the pattern that everybody else does. Don't respond and react in your life to everything happening around you the way that everybody else around you is going to. You have a different option and a different narrative. While everybody else is anxious, you get to live in the place called settled. Already in the story of the Tower of Babel, they're, they're trying to build a name for themselves. You don't have to do that. Your name, your identity... It's settled. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. The practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest. Then they decorate it with all kinds of stuff. We find these spaces and these places, right? And we, and, and we look at their lives that are ahead of us, and we, we too want to make a name for ourselves. We want people to see us. We can see what Jeremiah is telling us in this passage. that we, we prop this stuff up like the people who built the Tower of Babel. And, and we choose to invest in the things that can never deliver. Like the people screaming, free Barabbas. Jesus bar Abbas. Yeshua bar Abbas. Yahweh to the rescue, son of the father. Or 
Yahweh to the rescue, son of the Father. They have two choices. One was an insurrectionist and sought to bring about peace and prosperity through Israel's own strength, through the sword that would cast off Roman oppression. The other one decided to lay his life down instead. And the people are all crying out, let that blood be on our head because we'll make that choice ten times out of ten. So we want to prop up our scarecrow in a cucumber field and a little log that we cut down. We'll put all kinds of pretty stuff on top of it and then we'll beg it to say something of us. Like my life has meaning. And I'm going to build a house and I'm going to get a car and I'm going to get cool stuff and people will look at me and I'll have a resume that impresses everybody and I'll have built something and everybody will look at it. I'll keep breathing life into it and I'll try and I'll try and begging it to say something about me. Worthless breath. Trying to breathe life into a God. And the other option exists of a God who breathes life into us. Who forms us from dust and gives us life. Every breath that we take is settled. We call this grace. This strange, incomprehensible gift of God. That he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, all of us who are in Christ are invited not to live on this side of the cross. Still trying to build some edifice of hubris, trying to impress ourselves and the rest of the world that there's something significant about who we are. Instead, we live in history on the other side of the cross in a complete and total freedom. And it's funny because as many times when I've preached about this and, and people say that kind of sounds like cheap grace when there's nothing left to do. And what I want to say is there is only one real slippery slope in Christianity. And it's to believe that there's something ever that I'm going to do that adds to the work that has been done already for me. And so I dance on the platform of righteousness that has been created for me and I live my life here. We are so free. Because this has been settled. What was done for us was what we could never do for ourselves. This is the scandal of grace. One of my favorite theologians who's now passed, a man by the name of Brennan Manning, tells a story at 77 years old, reflecting back on his life, on how he's spend his whole life living into and trying to figure out the size and the strength of grace. In the closing pages of his memoir, he writes it like this. Some have labeled my message cheap grace. In my younger days, their accusations were a gauntlet thrown down, a challenge. But I'm an old man now, and I don't care. My friend Mike Iaconelli used the phrase unfair grace. And I like that, but I've come across another I'd like to leave you with. And I believe Mike would like it too. I know I do. And I found it in the writings of the Episcopal, Episcopal priest, Robert Ferrar Capone. He calls it vulgar grace. Capone writes, In Jesus, God has put up a gone fishing sign on the, reli on the religion shop. 
He has done the whole job in Jesus once and for all and simply invited us to believe it. To trust the bizarre, unprovable proposition that in him every last person on earth is already home free without a single religious exertion. No fasting till your knees hurt. No prayers you have to get right or else. No standing on your head with your right thumb and your left ear and reciting the correct creed. No nothing. The entire show has been set to rights in the mystery of Christ, even though nobody can see a single improvement. Oh yeah, it's crazy, all right. And it's wild and outrageous and vulgar. And worst of all, it doesn't sell worth beans. But it is good news. The only permanently good news there is. And therefore, I find it absolutely captivating. My life is a witness to vulgar grace. A grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 to 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, please remember me, and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sake, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It is not cheap. It's better than that. It's free. And as such, will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. The cross is enough. Jesus is enough. John, the disciple Jesus loved, ended his first letter with this line, Children, be on your guard against false gods. In other words, steer clear of any god that you can comprehend. Abba's love cannot be comprehended. I'll say it again. Abba's love cannot be comprehended. Today is a day of mystery. Today is a day where we stand on the other side of history looking back. Recalling our own remorse for all of our own shortcomings and failures, hating the parts of us that sin has tainted, and rightfully so. And today is the day that we look forward on the other side of the grave, realizing that all of this was given, not for how good you can be, but for how bad you already are. But so that that wouldn't define you. So that you would be changed now and forever. And my friends, that is settled. And it's why we don't call this Depravity Friday, Sadness Friday, Stay Here Forever Friday, Despairing Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday. Because your accounts and mine are settled. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the mystery of your work. 
We thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you that we cannot comprehend it. We thank you that because of you, we even get to call a day that commemorates your death and sacrifice good. We thank you that there's not one part of us that you are not searching out, that you are not inviting into your arms. And as you stretch them wide, Father, you held up that cross as much as it held up you in your son. You did that for us. And we pray too that in times like this, you will remind us and show us where we are trying to erect our scarecrows in some lame cucumber field. And instead, allow what you've done to define us further. So we don't have to spend our life creating a legacy or a name for ourselves, but relishing the new name that you've given us and the freedom that we have in you. Father, we reflect on your sacrifice and the incredible gift of your son that we're only beginning to understand. Refine us. Define us. And keep changing us by this work and through it. In Jesus' name, amen.